we really just did it for the experience and getting to to have fun with it. i mean you know maybe there's been a couple of things that have happened from it but we're not we're not trying to like launch a you know reality tv personality influencer career so i don't know it was really just amazing doing it we won we won a million dollars so that was cool we were able to actually that million dollars we parlayed that into buying twin flame our first cc2 foot catamaran which by the way our captain and crew and slash best friends are here visiting from the caribbean because our boat is in the off season right now um and so we've been doing that for the last four years uh with twin flame that that was kind of gave us some seed capital to do that and it also gave me the seed capital to get gel blaster going today on austinpreneur our guest colin gwen is interviewed by the ceo of capital factory joshua bayer for his class longhorn startup Colin is a CEO of Gel Blaster, a capital factory portfolio company which has become one of the best-selling toys in America in only a few years. For you reality TV fans, Colin and his wife Christy competed on The Amazing Race twice, and they won the last season in 2019. Colin is a world leader in robotics, drones, and connected devices, having launched DJI in North America and founded full-stack product design firm Gwen Partners. There were a few eye-opening moments for me during this conversation, and I expect there will be for you too. Welcome to Austinpreneur, our show about the stories that made Austin, Texas a global hub for startups. The show is produced by Capital Factory and hosted by me, Nick Spiller. As a reminder, by joining Capital Factory, you can plug into the ecosystem where the stories on the show were set. Learn more about us at CapitalFactory.com. Thank you, Colin, for joining us. Colin Gwynn is the CEO of Gel Blaster. Who has heard of Gel Blaster before today? A oh my God, this is you. great news. Okay. It's um, so good for our market penetration. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a breakout toy. It's one, like, one of the best-selling toys of the year. And it's kind of like one easy way to think about it is like the next Nerf gun. Um, but it doesn't, you don't have to pick up all that are bullets. And you know that's there's probably a lot of other benefits too, but that's like a really good starting point is you don't have to pick up all the bullets. Um, and so gel, Bla- gel blaster is the toy, and uh, Colin's done a lot of different things. I told you some about of it in his background as you prepared for this. Um, he's been an entrepreneur. He helped. He's done a lot of work with drones and robotics. He helped DJI, the biggest drone company in the world, to expand into the U.S. and grow their presence here. Um, and then has since then worked with lots of other drone companies. And uh, and then yet somehow, like probably, you know, in many ways, not the what he expected to happen. One of the most successful things that he happens to be working on right now is Gel Blaster, which is a toy that he originally built for his own son, for his for his kids to play with. And so Gel Blaster is itself a, a huge success and a really great story and lots to learn from. Um, but Colin himself has a great story uh, behind it all, too. And he does it all with a lot of purpose as well. Um, and uh, you can you the assignment for today for you to watch was um, the wrap up of the first episode of him and his wife Christy being on the Amazing Race. And um, and he then was actually they were so amazing that they were called back for like the like the alumni like 
bring back the best of people to go do it again um, and got to do it a second time. So they got to do it twice in two different seasons. Um, and then he's used that as a great platform to help um, reach other entrepreneurs, and both of them have, um, and other people and, and help them think about their lives and some of the challenges, you know, and they're, they're, they're everyone's, own, everyone's own amazing race. So, um, so thank you, Colin, for joining us and, and, and Christy and your guests for, for coming here tonight. And, uh, and we're really excited to learn more from your story. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. Honored to be here. I think it's so cool what you're doing. I, I'm just, as I'm sitting here watching and looking at your schedule of speakers and having them pitch and the feedback, I mean, wow. I am, I would imagine this class books up very quickly. Yeah, well, it's, it's, you know, we've been teaching, mean, it kind of blows my mind. I've been teaching it more than a dozen years and we've had more than a thousand students come through here. Wow. Um, and, um, and yeah, and for me, it's my way of getting to, you know, meet students every year and get them to come to Capital Factory and get, and get to find companies to invest in and people to work with and it's awesome. lots of things like that too. Yeah, what, a, what an incredible opportunity. Really, really cool that you're doing this. So, Colin, um, let's start with they watched the video about the Amazing Race. Tell us how you got on the Amazing Race. This uh, was pretty early in the world of like reality it, TV. It was, it was early in the world of reality TV back back then. Actually, still now, there's a lot of recruiting that's done for reality TV, where people go around to different campuses or they'll go recruit from different places. And actually, Christy was Miss Teen USA when she was 18, 19 years old. Um, and so once you're on one of those lists, then it's very common to be getting recruited for different reality shows. And she would get recruited for Bachelorette and Bachelor and Island this and that. And, you know, obviously, like, hadn't, we really had no interest of doing reality TV back then. Chrissy was on a TV series that filmed in Lithuania for a couple of years and, you know, was doing a lot of, like, normal acting. And, and, you know, 20 years ago, doing reality TV was kind of the kiss of death for an actor. Um, and so always never really entertained the ideas, but they, they called, she came home one day and was like, yeah, I got a call about some show called amazing race. You like travel around and do stuff, you know, whatever. And so I like Google it and it had been on for a couple of years. I was like, we got to do this. This is like traveling around the world, doing all these amazing challenges. This is, seems like the best show ever. Um, so then we sent in a tape and then you go through a whole process and narrow down and ultimately they, they picked us to do it. So short story is she got invited. A hundred percent. I just wrote her coattails. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, and so why, uh, why did you end up on it a second season? I, you know, I think, um, I probably gave them pretty good amount of ammo for good TV, call it. Um, we were highly competitive, kind of win at all costs tons of ego, just ultra, you know, go, go, go. And we were combative and I was, you know, kind of, you know, off the rails at times. And so they were like, they would be great to bring back. Right. And we, and we won more legs than I think it has ever been won on a season, but we didn't win the last leg. So we didn't win. So they were like, okay, when we bring this kind of all-stars together of people that have almost won, but not won, they'd be a great, you know, invite back and actually it's funny we were if you really want to know we, we were doing one of our manifestation practices in jackson hole on the mountain and we had just watched our first season of the amazing race for the first time since it had first aired so this was 14 years later our kids had never seen this season 
And we're like, okay, maybe it's been long enough. We can like show him this. And I can be like, you came from that person. So you may want to pay attention. Um, anyway, so we ended up having a blast watching our season of the race. We ended up, as we went to spring break and went to Jackson Hole, we watched the finale in Jackson Hole. The next day on the mountain, we were just kind of dreaming into, we were like, wouldn't it be kind of cool to go back and do the race again, but kind of from a different place, different perspective, a different awareness, and you know, using different practices, could we kind of combine being all in for the win and being highly competitive, but not being attached to it and not having it define who we are, right? And um, so we just dreamt into this, we were visualizing it, what it would be like, and, and I sent one message to someone who was, did casting back when we did it the first time, 14 years earlier, had never talked to her since, Sent her a text message. I don't even know if it was still her number. Anyway, she writes back three weeks later. She's like, actually, we're putting together an all-star season, and if you guys want to be on it, you're in. We leave in a month. And then, so how did that affect your business life, um, if it did? Yeah, uh, you know, we, we were gone for four weeks. So it was like an extended vacation. I had just started Gwen Partners, and so we were just getting Gwen Partners off the ground, which is an engineering services firm here in Austin. Um, but I had three really strong partners, um, and they were like, yeah, great, go do it, we got this. Because you're gone for four weeks and we're, we couldn't talk to our kids, we couldn't text with our kids, we couldn't, you know, you had like a PA that would let you know every three or four days, everything's good at home, but no email, no communication with the outside world. So, you know, it was a little bit nerve wracking, like, you know, okay, I'm, we started the business like a year earlier and then leave for four weeks, but it was great, it was fine. We really just did it for the experience and getting to, to have fun with. I mean, you know, maybe there's been a couple of things that have happened from it, but we're not we're not trying to like launch a, you know, reality TV personality influencer career. So I don't know. It was really just amazing doing it. We won, we won a million dollars, so that was cool. We were able to actually that million dollars, we parlayed that into buying Twin Flame, our first CC2 for Catamaran, which, by the way, our captain and crew and slash best friends are here visiting from the Caribbean because our boat is in the off-season right now. Um, and so we've been doing that for the last four years uh, with Twin Flame. That that was kind of gave us some seed capital to do that. And it also gave me the seed capital to get Gel Blaster going. So um, let's talk about Gel Blaster. Let's do it. How did, how did this start? Like, I mean, you had a very successful business helping lots of other companies to build their drone companies um building products you were coming up with products you were like doing like physical things like that's a like it's kind of a drone toy robot thing but like well, not, just wait till you see what's coming <laughs> yeah right. very drone robot like how do you end up building a toy company our kids were playing a bunch of video games and what I noticed is that they, they were 8 and 12 at the time, and they were playing a lot of Fortnite on their iPads. And I noticed kind of this, like, internal judge voice in my head that was like, when I was your age, we'd ride around the neighborhood on our bikes and get in trouble, and we'd be out all day, and, you know, y'all just want to sit on the couch and play your iPads, you know? And I'm like, okay, wait, take notice of that. Like, what is that, what is that telling me, right? And so I was like, let me just try to understand this let me try to understand like what is this draw right so i'm like okay so I, i'm watching them play i'm like all right i'm gonna i'm gonna play fortnite with them i'm gonna get into it it turns out i'm a total noob and they would just literally kill me 
over and over and over. No mercy. They wouldn't even let me hang out for like a minute in the little arena before they would just kill me again and again, laughing at me. So we'll bring, come back around to what they brought on with that. Um, but I'm playing and I realize, wow, the reason that they're choosing to play these video games ultimately is because the brightest minds in our world and the best investment dollars in our world are all going toward making these digital experiences incredibly engaging and compelling and addictive and profitable, right? And what I realized is like, whoa, when I was a kid, I had to think to myself and go, okay, internal judge voice, when I was a kid, was I playing outside because it was like the healthy thing to do? No, it was the most selfish, fun thing to do as a little kid because inside meant reruns of The Price is Right and MacGyver didn't come on till seven o'clock. So I'm, I'm out, right? So I realized that our screen-based options have gotten at least three orders of magnitude better in the last 30 years probably like 10 orders of magnitude better. And then if you think about our outdoor options for our kids to run around and play, they're like not that different. Ride a bike, ride a skateboard, play basketball, play football with your friends. I mean, we got spike ball now, which is cool. That wasn't out, you know. You got can jam is kind of cool. Cornhole, maybe that's new. Pickleball's up and coming. But I mean, this is not like a massive change the way we've seen with screen-based activities. So then as I kind of played these traps in my head, I realized like, wow, as parents, like we're really kind of up against an unfair fight here. My parents weren't up against this. I chose to go outside and play and engage with other human beings in the real world face to face because I wanted to meet friends and play outside. Like our kids don't have to do that. And turns out the thing that hits their dopamine receptors the most is playing on these devices. And so, someone is going to have to do something about that. We can't just all sit around as parents and complain. So I started running the traps of like, what would it take to kind of recreate this experience in a physical manner? What I realized was that when I was playing video games in college, I'm playing SSX or Gran Turismo or whatever, I was kind of wanting to recreate something that I would rather be doing in the real world. I'd rather be snowboarding, but if I'm not snowboarding, I'll play SSX. I'd rather be racing a go-kart around a track, but if I'm not, I'll play Gran Turismo. And so I was like, I wonder if that theory is true with my kids. So I was like, what's the closest approximation to Fortnite would be what? What do you guys think would be like the kind of the closest real world thing to Fortnite? Nerf gun? Who said that? Paintball. I was like, I'm pretty sure if you want a real world version of this, where you can't just make fun of me and call me a noob the whole time, we're going to play paintball. You're going to get to run around. It's going to hurt when you get hit. There's real consequence. Like, how are they going to respond to this? I take my 12-year-old. He's a bigger 12-year-old, so, you know, probably a little young. Um, loved it. Got hooked. We started playing paintball like twice a month, right? But every time we play paintball, it's like $400. The paint is so expensive. Compressed air, expensive paintball markers. You're driving an hour away. You're destroying the interior of your car every time you drive home. You know, I'm like, okay, you know, there's another thing that will be part of our business course down the road, which I coined is called the BSTT. You always have to know what your future customer's BSTT is. Does anyone know what the BSTT is? You haven't taught that yet? It's called the bullshit tolerance threshold, okay? 
And it's a very important thing to know how technical high. Technical term. What's that? It's a technical term. That's right. How high is your future customer's tolerance for dealing with kind of friction in that user experience, right? So paintball is this big market that actually has, requires a very high tolerance of dealing with BS, right? Cost, distance traveled, it's, you know, dirty, it's painful. And so I, I was like, huh, we were playing a lot. My younger son started playing with us. He came one time to play. He got hit by a couple of paintballs. One of them like drew blood on his stomach. He was like, eh, y'all can have paintball. That's too much. And so I was like, okay, cool. Well, we'll just we'll just go home and we'll play the closest thing to paintball that that is good for this age group. We had like 40 Nerf Blasters at home. We had bought all these Nerf Blasters over the years. We had a big Nerf battle. Turns out it was super boring. You're reloading ammo most of the time. So I was like, that experience is kind of broken. That's great for like a five, six, seven-year-old kid. But by the time our kid was eight, he's over Nerf. But yet he's nowhere near ready for paintball. We're starting to see a hole in the market, right? I'm like, wait a second. So I'm just searching, like, what comes after Nerf? Like, what I want to order it for my house. I want to deliver it tomorrow so I can run around and battle with my kids in the yard and call them noobs, right? So there wasn't anything. And that's where I just realized, like, oh, my God. Am I literally looking at a billion-dollar market every year of selling foam dart blasters, a billion-dollar paintball market, a billion-dollar airsoft market, and there's literally kids age out of foam darts at eight, and they can't really play paintball or airsoft until, like, 14, which is also, like, pretty niche in and of themselves. And so that was the first opportunity where I... A lot more people use Nerf than paintball. A lot more people use Nerf than paintball. But paintball and airsoft are significantly more expensive, so they end up being kind of similar sized markets. But yes, very few people actually go into paintball and airsoft. Maybe one in 20 that played Nerf, right? So um, that was kind of the first concept of, wow, I'm not a toy guy, but I'm a dad and I'm looking for a thing and it doesn't exist. And we could just make this and you know, maybe we'll talk later about like the high tech aspect of this. But as I let my mind kind of pretend like there was limitless possibility, I asked myself, what would it take to like really make that experience, but in the yard where you're running around? Because the problem I had with video games was like, I know what I want my guy to do. I want to go hide behind that bush, and then I want to pop out, and I want to shoot you in the head. But, like, I couldn't get my fingers to make my guy do it, right? And you have to put so much time into becoming one with the controller. And I don't have the time to be able to put in that kind of reps to, to like, make my guy do exactly what I want him to do very quickly in real time. And so then my kids are just laughing at me. So I'm like... If we could create this experience where you are the avatar running around in physical space and instead of using the right stick to control forward, back, left, right, you just use your legs. And instead of using the left stick to control looking around, you just use your neck muscles and you just use your trigger and you actually shoot a physical projectile. Because in my opinion, if you're not shooting a physical projectile and if it doesn't hurt at least a little bit, it's kind of boring right and and so could we create that but add all of the digital elements of a video game 
and we all know at the time we knew, oh my God, I should have brought my patents. They literally arrived at the office today. Oh, wow. I could have showed them right here. It was really cool. Okay, so we all knew at the time, this is three years ago, that augmented reality is going to be a thing. It's going to get big. So as a technologist... Let, 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 let's let's yeah. not go there yet. Let's okay, just stay okay. at the toy right. for a minute. Like, let's, let's, <laughs> You're just going to have to rein me in. The, rabbit, talk, the rabbit hole goes down. pretty deep. But right now, let's just talk about it as a toy. So like as a, this is a, it's a replacement for a Nerf gun. You know, yeah. like Nerf gun, super successful. This There's is a, a clear better, market for this This is thing. just a better Nerf gun, more useful, more applicable. More accessible, lower How, BS required. You have more resources available to you than most people to just like go build something but like you're like so let's just go build it like how do you go build it like what is that how do you go build a gun so like a dirt nerf gun, i mean for me know? we had an engineering firm so we just made it really quickly i mean and, and actually we actually kept it very simple because we didn't have a ton of money and we didn't have an investment i was funding the entire thing myself I didn't want to throw like hundreds of thousands of dollars at this because maybe no one cares about this thing so what we give our advice to our entrepreneurs and businesses that we're helping at Gwen Partners is like, you are trying to spend as little money and time as humanly possible to get to product market fit. Like test your product market fit, it's all that matters. If you have product market fit and a high net promoter score and good gross margins, then proceed, right? Otherwise just don't- And proceed to invest more money, spend yeah, more just money, don't, market just throw it. it away. Right. And so we were looking for the shortest, easiest, most efficient way to do that. And so uh, we 3D printed, we drew it out, made some kind of designs. It looks very, very close to that. But the original ones that we sold on Kickstarter, they were 3D printed, were actually a little bit more basic looking. We, ba we brought out all the Nerf blasters, paintball, airsoft, recoil, AR games. We're just looking at them all like, how do we make a really good, easy user experience for kids and their parents to get outside in the yard and just shoot each other and cause laughter and exercise and running around? And so we kind of tuned how fast it should it shoot. We don't want to be able to cause any eye damage, even if I shot you right in the eye eyeball from here. But we do want it to like hurt a little bit, you know, so we kind of tune the velocity. We put it on Kickstarter. You know, we, we know how to do marketing. So you don't just like put something on Kickstarter and cross your fingers. You have to do like a month or six weeks of kind of pre-marketing campaigns so you can pop off on the day one of Kickstarter and get picked up by the algorithms. And there's, there's a bit of a, you know, but that just comes from experience. Um, I think we, we got onto Kickstarter with a product and a video that we shot in our yard with working products for under $100,000. And then we did like 350 grand, 380 grand, something like that on Kickstarter, which really you can just buy as much revenue as you want at that point, but it's not really very profitable revenue. We knew enough to say, okay, we're going to make our first 16,000 of these things and actually sell them at a better profit than like the, the huge discount Kickstarter deal. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how we like got it off the ground. And we, hadn't, when, when we, we didn't hire our first employee until we ordered 16,000 units. So, and, and you, you kind of said two things that, went t hand in hand you were you were like on the one hand like there's no um you know don't just think you can just launch a kickstarter like you got to like go work it you got to market it you got to make it happen and then you're like on the other hand you were like yeah but we know how to do that like you know we've done that but you know we, we just know that from experience you know like it's not that easy like what how, what how did you even how did you get that experience why did you have experience launching kickstarters how did you know how to market stuff i, I think for me personally because I've always done sales. 
all my whole life growing up, right? I went to military school when I was 11 years old in Kansas, and we got $5 a week in allowance, and I wanted to buy more candy than that afforded me because I ate a lot of candy. And so I was like, I, got, I need more money than this. And so what I could do is I could go to Walmart down the street and I could buy a 24 pack of Dr. Pepper for about 750 and a 24 pack of microwave popcorn for like 470, like 11 or $12 for 48. And I sold them for a dollar a piece. So people knew they could come to my dorm room anytime and pay $2 for a popcorn and a Dr. Pepper. And I could turn that 11 or $12 into 48. And I just always had Dr. Pepper and popcorn available. Then I would have my parents send me care packages. And on Sunday mornings when people got to sleep in and they were super hungry come 9 or 10 o'clock because we always ate every morning at 7 at military school, then I would price gouge people and be like, oh, you want a can of Pringles? <laughs> it's going to be 7 bucks, you know, or whatever. And so I was just like, I started at 11 just selling, right? And then I went in, I sold knives in high school. I sold telecommunications. I sold books door to door to pay my way through college. Okay. And so I, I'm with you, but specifically Kickstarter, because it is its own thing. Like I had never done Kickstarter. You'd never done a Kickstarter before. You had I'd never done, done Kickstarter. Your, no, none of your Gwyn partners. We'd never done a Kickstarter's like campaign. So, so you, I kind of wanted to try out Kickstarter. It was kind of a way to be like, well, we're going to launch this thing. Like we, we kind of should know how this platform works. So let's go ahead and figure it out. So we talked to some people that do Kickstarter, had some meetings with them, understood that turns out Kickstarter is basically just a giant racket. Um, you know, it, it's like very much pay to play. Occasionally there's a product that really pops off and, and goes wild, which I think sometimes gets companies into more trouble than they even realize, because now they're trying to scale faster than they can. Um, but we, we met with some people, we learned how it works, and we learned you know, the process of like, you really want 10,000 people who have signed up to be notified when you go live that you can hit on day one. It costs us about a dollar of lead to do you know, ads on social media that drop people onto a landing page that said, this cool new blaster product is coming out, it shoots, you know, bio, you know, environmentally friendly water-based ammo. You don't have to clean it up. It's battery powered. It's full auto. It's super fun. The basic value prop of what we're launching. If you want to be notified when we go live on Kickstarter to get the best deal possible, put your email here, put your cell phone number here. We use Klaviyo for SMS capture and email capture. We, and we basically run those ads and we were trying to get our costs per you know, hot lead down below a dollar. We ended up getting it to about 72 cents across. So we spent 10 grand on the campaign. I think we had 12 and a half thousand, you know, people on our list, something like that. And so that's kind of like the basic formula so that when you launch, you're hitting your list four days before you launch, two days before you launch, day before you launch, morning you launch. You know, text crushes email by like an order of magnitude. Right, we didn't add text to like the last two weeks of our campaign. I really wish we would have been doing text the whole time. Um, and you want to hit? We did a hundred thousand in sales our first day, and because we did that six weeks of work leading up to it, when you launch and then you have, I think we had two or three thousand of those people convert on the first day. Um, we did a hundred thousand in sales on the first day, which triggered the Kickstarter algorithms. Then you become like a product we love, an editor's choice product. Then, then you start getting some free traction and promotion from Kickstarter. So, you know, that's really, then you can pay these campaigns. You can pay these 
agencies who specialize in um, preying on young entrepreneurs like myself um, to, you know, they, they, they've done so many Kickstarter campaigns, they've built this, these lists of millions of people who have supported their previous campaigns that they hoard that data and basically, hey, we'll market your product, but we want like 25% of the revenue. I mean, it's like usury yeah. rates, right? So did you use them, anything like that? We, a little bit, but I was just like, you know, it, there's the, the, uh, when you hit that algorithm and you're like a product we like, then everyone comes at you, right? Here's what we can offer. We're gonna hit our list of 2 million people. This is what we want to return. And they all want like 20 to 30% of the revenue. So we're just like, no thanks. Like, we know this product is gonna work. We're, we're hundreds of thousands in, like we know we're gonna make it. People seem to be really excited about it. And so we could have just bought a whole bunch of non-profitable revenue to make our Kickstarter numbers look better. But like, why? We, like, we, we had the product market fit that we needed. We checked the box, like, let's move on to the next step. What about like, you have multiple, running multiple businesses. You know, you had Gwynn Partners, which is effectively this, you know, think of like a software development shop that builds apps or websites, except they build drones and robots. I don't know if that feels good to you, but yeah. you know, like, so they're like, you know, if you, you want to build something, you can go to them with an idea. Like he could come with them with an idea for the job blaster and they can concept it and draw it up and help build, you know, help produce it and, and get you a prototype. Um, and that, you know, you have that business and then this side project that you started starts blowing up and taking off and taking up more and more of your time. Like, how do you balance that? How do you think about that? No, it's a really good question. So I think that it also just comes from years of working, like treat people really well that you work with and they always want to work with you going forward, whether they're your business partner or an employee or whatever. And so, you know, so many of the employees at Gwen Partners and Gel Blaster were employees of DJI. 3DR, Hangar, Build Design Print, my, my old companies, right? And so over the years, we've been building up this kind of network of people that we've worked with. And I had really good partners at Gwen Partners. So as it started taking off, I went from spending 10% of my time on Gel Blaster to 20% to 30%. But I wasn't, I think one of the biggest lessons to learn is like, if so many businesses I did before the last seven or eight years, it was kind of like, this is the one thing I'm doing. And if this doesn't work, I am screwed. I'm not gonna be able to pay my bills. I gotta make this thing work. Right? That is not the mindset space you wanna be in. I spent 20 years what, what's, in that mindset what, why do you, what, what do you mean? What, what is you that? start making bad decisions. Mean. I know what you mean, but like, what is, what is that mind space? It, I mean, it, isn't that every entrepreneur that's getting started that has nothing? Maybe it is. But the faster you can transcend that concept of the success of this business directly ties to my worthiness as a human being on this planet and a, amongst my friend group, like if those two things are tied together, I, I remember feeling at 3DR when we were taking on DJI with a, with a new drone product, which is a monumental task. We're taking on a $5 billion company as a new startup in the Bay Area. It's our very first drone that we created was the Solo drone in partnership with GoPro. And here we're competing against DJI launching the Phantom 3, which was like their 15th drone. And, and I'm like, I am on a mission to like prove myself, right? And like 
you know, win and beat DJI because, you know, they did X, Y, and Z, whatever. And there was just too much ego wrapped up in that and too much, like, identification with if that thing is not successful, it means that I'm not this, like, really great, cool entrepreneur guy that's super smart and knows how to do a business. And so, uh uh-oh, what happens if that fails, then you know, how am I going to like show my face to all my cool entrepreneur friends like Josh in town, right? And so, you know, that causes you to make questionable decisions. It causes you to like not look at things you don't want to look at. Um, our, our financial model was not right. Like that wasn't my part of the business, but like we weren't making profit. We grew to $100 million in revenue in 18 months and every drone we sold, we lost money. So actually, the, the faster we grew, the worse it was for the company, right? And, and instead of just slowing it down and, like, not trying to hit Best Buy and all the big retailers right off the bat, sell D2C for a while only. You know, I, I could have made a lot of better decisions as the chief revenue officer of that company. Um, and so with Gel Blaster and with Gwyn Partners and, you know, post being able to look inward and, and like grow up as a human being, I realize now that like businesses are just like playing a game of Catan, right? It's just a board game. It's just playing a game of chess. You're making some assumptions. Maybe some people also want to get outside with their kids and play in the yard like I do. And if I make this thing and it's, you know, not too expensive, they might enjoy playing with it. And you're just kind of like running a series of experiments. And then if, if everything checks out, you go to the next phase and you run some more experiments. And then if those all check out, you go to the next phase. And I believe that that has actually allowed us to scale so much faster because we are letting the business and the market pull from us, right? And, and there, there have been things with Gel Blaster that have caused us to kind of, by necessity, accelerate our scaling namely Hasbro. We had the largest toy company in the world essentially come down here, do a deal with us. You know, I think we were in this conference room or on the 16th floor or down here, something like that. And they flew their private jet down with all their executives. Right when we had started, they bought one of our Kickstarter products. This is obviously the people that make Nerf. And they're like, hey, we want to license it and we want to take over and make this thing for you and sell it and ship it. And you won't have to do any of the hard work. You and your team of engineers can just keep coming up with cool ideas. It's going to be amazing. And the numbers were so good. We couldn't say no. It was like too good to be, you know, it was like, okay, well, if they're going to agree to all this, like we should do this deal. Well, turns out I don't know that they were ever going to actually give us those numbers because six weeks into diligence and giving them all of our materials and sharing everything, they're like, okay, cool, we want to do this deal. We're ready to move forward, but we're just going to adjust it a little bit, essentially giving it like a 50% haircut. And we, so in that moment, I can either act from a place of fear if I know that the success of Gel Blaster is tied to my identity as a person, I might say, okay, 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 fine, because it's still a good outcome, it's still a win, you know, whatever, I'll still partner with you guys. Or if it's just an experiment, it's just a game, you know, it's like, no, there's no reason for you to cut this deal in half just because Walmart's estimates were four times what you thought they were going to be from a demand perspective. That can't be a reason to give us less of a license fee. And so we had to have the courage 
to say, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to go for it on our own. But in doing that, we were a little bit forced, like, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to scale very quickly because we are going to be up against the largest toy companies in the world trying to, like, come into this new category that we've identified. Yeah. So when you want to scale really quickly, how do you build a team around you of people to go do that? Like, the people that were at the Gel Blaster were not necessarily, like, people from the toy industry, right, or from the retail industry. They didn't, maybe didn't, had, I don't, you know, I don't know if they had, had they sold things to Walmart, like, or, you know, or Hasbro. So I'll take it back to magic, which I'll always do. Um, but, you know, I, I would say at least half of the work that I do is in my meditation practice and in just visualizing what I want, like how I want to feel in the future and how I want to feel like it's flowing and then just kind of let my subconscious make a bunch of decisions for me throughout the day. But I think sometimes it goes beyond that, right? So I was having that exact problem. We're a bunch of robot people. We don't know toys. How do we solve this? And we're doing our meditation manifestation practices around it and visualizing the perfect person to come in. Meanwhile, Steve Starobinsky, toy industry person for 20 plus years, kid at heart, the perfect person had just moved to Austin. We were probably sold in like five retail doors. This is two years ago, right? We were probably sold in five locations. Today, we're sold in 20,000 retail stores in 65 countries. So at that time, we were sold in five. And one of them was at Barton Creek Mall. He had moved to Austin, walked into the toy store that I happened to sell into myself two weeks earlier, a week earlier. He walks in, he's kind of like, oh, what's going on in the toy industry here in Austin? You know, and they're like, you got to check out this thing. They don't even know he's like Steve, who's like future toy industry Hall of Famer guy. They're like, you got to check this thing out. And they give him one of our products. He starts shooting it in the store. He's like, what is this thing? How do I not know about this? I know everything there is to know about the toy industry. And they go, yeah, actually, they're an Austin company. He's like, no, that, that's not right. There's no toy companies in Austin. That, that's not correct. And they're like, no, nah, the guy was in here like last week, the owner. And they just brought him in here. Like, they're definitely in Austin. So he reached out to us on Instagram. We got to meet. He comes over. He's been with us since then. And so he really was his connections in retail, his connections in toy for the last 20 years were absolutely vital in helping us to, you know, I had sold things to Walmart and Target and Best Buy and things like that, but never in toy, right? And so we just, you can say we just got lucky with Steve, but there's maybe 14 other examples of that same type of thing happening. I want to make sure that we leave time for the students to ask questions. Um, but I want to lastly just focus on you've commented a number of times tonight and made references to your meditation and practices and how important that is to you. Um, so tell us a little bit more about what what is that? What are you talking about? And how does that impact how you are as a leader and as an entrepreneur? That's a big one. Okay. I'll, I'll try to, if I'm looking at this from kind of an engineering product development standpoint, I think that our brains do a lot of things that we think about in our prefrontal cortex and our conscious mind. But think about all of the things that our subconscious mind is doing all the time, right? We're cognitive misers. We're taking in, what is it, 400,000 bits of information per second, 4 million bits of information per second. And just like a camera, 
takes in raw sensor data, then uses an image signal processor to throw away the vast majority of it and create a JPEG or an MP4, right? We know about how compression works. Our brains do the same thing. Yet our subconscious mind is taking in all that information and is making all these micro decisions continuously throughout the day that we're not even necessarily aware of in our conscious mind, right? So I would say the, the shortest answer for me is that I wanna spend some amount of time each day in stillness when I'm not in my thinking mind. And oftentimes what I'll do is practices where I'm visualizing, I first get into a state of feeling really good. You ever notice how some days when you're feeling really good, everything feels possible and it almost feels like, of course this is gonna work out. Of course this business is gonna work, right? And then some days when you're feeling a little tired and a little worn out and maybe you got in a fight with your significant other or your roommate because they didn't pick up after themselves and you're kind of frustrated and you're like, man, this business is never going to work. No one's going to want to come work here. And I would just take notice of that. Wow, it's interesting how the same concepts from day to day could, could feel so different, right? And so I started just like, you know, backwards engineering that and saying, okay, well, I don't want to like think about those things when I'm in that state. So first and foremost, if I'm in that place, I am not trying to solve business problems. I am not trying to solve relationship problems. I am only gonna figure out how to get myself to work my way back into a place of feeling good by doing the things that I know support me. Wake surfing, foiling, getting out on the water, paddle boarding, meditating, you know, going on a hike, whatever, playing with my kids. And so, you know, a lot of it is just training my subconscious mind to be making decisions that are in my higher self's best interest when I'm not paying attention. And if I am like down and low and feeding a bunch of energy, a bunch of negative energy into some idea or some plan, now I've just trained my natural language processor subconscious mind to go and make a bunch of decisions in that direction for me, right? And so a lot of it I think is just using a practice to be able to deliberately vision what I want to, how I want to feel. I, I don't, when Gel Blaster happened, I remember the feeling of being at DJI when we launched the Phantom 1 and we just couldn't make enough of these things. People loved them. We created the consumer drone industry. It was so exciting. We're flying drones and teaching the most famous people on the planet how to fly drones and 60 minutes is coming down doing specials on us we're just blowing up it was and there's all kinds of problems you have to deal with there's all kinds of challenges but demand is not one of them it's really cool if demand is not one of your problems but you gotta back when like you know you'd launch the drone and like it was hard sometimes to just get it to float and stay in spot right Whereas that's right it's like it, it so was kind of the right? first drone that yeah. would like fly itself for you. Yeah. And if you turned off the remote, it would fly itself home and land itself. You know, it was like a magic trick, right? Yeah. And so after, years after, and then I went and did 3DR, and while we scaled and won in a lot of ways, ultimately we failed. And all the learning lessons and all the ego deaths that came with that, I was actually meditating around and manifesting, like, I just want to one more chance to like feel that excitement of like, you know, holding a tiger by the tail, like just having something that's so exciting and people love so much that we're just trying to solve all the problems necessary to make more of these things and give them to more people. 
because that was such a fun time at DJI. And so I would live into what that felt like. And I would live into like, I'm going to feel like that again in the future. And this time, it's, I'm going to have started it from scratch myself. And I'm going to control my own destiny with it. But it's going to be something that is so hot and people love so much that we're, all the problems we're solving are just about getting more of this stuff out into the market. And so that way, when I came home and I saw, wait a second, there isn't a play thing for eight to 14 year old kids to do in the yard with their parents and their siblings. That's a little bit more than Nerf, but a little bit less than paintball. I may have never identified that as a possible market opportunity or a business I wanted to create because it's not in drones, it's not in robots, it has nothing to do with my experience or my past. But I had been manifesting that since. And I was like, it hit me in that moment. I was like, oh, damn there's probably a lot of parents that may want their kids to get outside and play more. And I know this would be a really fun experience for kids. So like, this could be that thing. And I remember telling Christy, like, this is gonna sound real weird, but I think we might make toy blasters and they might like really pop off. And so I think that's what allowed me to just be open to that possibility when it presented itself. So with gel blaster, when did it go from Wow, that's such a good idea. This could be the thing. Like, I can see this. Like, I, yeah, but it's an idea to like, holy, shit, this thing's on. We're we okay, we're actually on to something. Like, this is real. Like, what was that I, moment? I, I think seeing Hasbro's response to it and seeing all those executives and how they were treating it, I was like, they've been doing this a long time. They they've launched a lot of blasters, so that was a, a pretty interesting indication. And when we told Hasbro, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to do this alone. We had done a grand total of like two and a half million dollars of revenue in our company's history. And Hasbro's thinking like, are these guys crazy? We are just going to squash them and the whole world is going to think we invented this category. Like they know for certain because that is what we do. That's what they did to Super Soaker. And they got called out for it and had to pay an $80 million settlement. But that's what they do to a lot of young inventor toy companies. And I know that's what they thought they were going to do to us. Um, but that was a big indication. And then when we got on the phone with Walmart, and, sh and we're like, okay, we're going to do all this, and we're going to be with Hasbro, and they're going to make it. We got this cool marketing agency, and it's going to be this cool press. She's like, yeah, 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 cool, cool, cool. My problem is I don't think you're going to be able to keep us in stock with this product. You, why don't you tell me how you're going to be able to keep me in stock? Because I think I'm going to need like 2 million units next year, which constitutes like a 70 plus million dollar year of revenue when we had done like $2 million of revenue so far. And I was like, okay, that's an interesting challenge because that is a challenge. How do we figure out how are we going to finance that? Like, you know, I, I can't walk into a bank and be like, all right, cool. So I'm going to need like 20 million bucks to build a bunch of these plastic blasters because the Walmart girl told me she's going to buy a whole bunch of them. And guess what? Walmart is not going to do any kind of guarantee POs. They're not going to do any kind of nothing. I, and I'll write you an email saying how much I think that I am going to buy from you next year. And you can use that and try to make it something. So we can't get any real banks to give us money on that. It's too risky. So we basically scaled the entire company on credit cards or really like probably significantly higher interest rates than credit cards. And luckily, we have very, very strong gross margins. And we basically pissed away all those gross margins in usury, like, like 
you know, loan shark like money. And, but that's all you can get. Like when you're a young business, you're the like 19 year old kid walking into the Porsche dealership to get like the 0% financing on a 911 turbo. And they're like, what? Not in a million years. And then the next thing you know, you're buying like a five-year-old 350Z at the used car dealership for a 27% interest. That was us as a business, right? Because that's who we were at that time. We have no history, no proof. So we could decide, well, we could sell a whole bunch of equity and give up a huge part of the business, or we can have enough confidence that we are going to be able to get to scale eventually, and we are going to get our interest rates down over time. And this isn't going to be some flash in the pan thing, because as the four people who raise their hands saying they know about who Gel Blaster is, what that is evidence of is that we still have very, very small market awareness, like 14% market awareness, and we're going to do $100 million in revenue this year. So all we have to do is get to 70% market awareness, 60% market awareness, and there's 4X revenue without any of the high-tech digital stuff we're doing. So to us, it was worth just letting it ride, you know, and they're like, okay, well, you know, you're going to have to sign a personal guarantee on all this. I'm like, all right, let's go. So you got to be willing to take risk. You got to be willing to not have it all matter so much, right? Because at the end of the day, if it all flops and fails, I can have confidence in my ability to create the life that I want for myself because the life I want for myself isn't, isn't reliant on having a bunch of money. I could be living in Costa Rica, teaching surfing on the beach if all goes to hell and have a wonderful life down there. So I, I can't have that attachment and that fear driving my decision making. So. Well, I could keep asking you questions, uh, but let's uh, open it up to some of the audience. And as you know, we usually go. No questions. Seriously, no one has a question. From the front to the no back. No one has so a question. We'll start with you over here. Uh, hi. You've worked on, grown, and led a lot of hardware companies. Can you talk about some of the challenges that you encountered and what lessons you've learned from them? Maybe specific to hardware? Specific to, turns out hardware's hard, costs a lot of money, takes three times longer than you thought for three times more expensive than you thought it was gonna be. Make damn sure you have margins. Like, that's probably the big one is people make some hardware product and they're like, ah, we'll figure out margins later. We're gonna make this, whether it's a drone, we're gonna make it for 1500 and we're gonna sell them for 1200 but eventually we're gonna get our costs right and we're gonna start making money. Well, it's like, that's a fake product. That's not a real thing. Just because people wanna buy that thing for $1,200, like they're buying something for $1,200 that costs you 1500 to make. That's not real, right? Like, that can't actually exist in the world, right? We're not living in the world of NFTs and hardware. We have to actually buy parts, put them together, put them in a package and send them to customers. So like, if you don't have very clear line of sight on how that 1400 becomes 300, which is like a pretty big drop in cogs and bomb, right? Then just don't do it. So with Kickstarter, we knew like our initial products that we sold on Kickstarter cost us $17. Today we're down to 10. That's a huge decrease. And we knew that we were gonna have that ability. But at $17, the very first product we ever sold was 59 bucks. And that was as thin as I was willing to ever go because if we cannot sell this 
at a profit and have high net promoter score, which is literally the only metric that matters in your business, if I can sell at a good gross margin and have a high net promoter score, we are onto something. And so I would say like, get your costs right, don't fool yourself, right? If you can't sell it at a profit, it's not real. Hardware is a hell of, hardware is hard. That's a saying. That's like, I've been hearing that saying for a long time. It's, hardware is like not nearly as hard as it was 10 years ago. Would you agree with that? In the sense that nothing is as hard as it was 10 years ago because of like all these technological advances, right? I mean, writing a paper is not as hard as it was 10 years ago. But like, it's just hardware is more, it's more modular. It's more like software. It's more, uh, there's more ways to get things, you can 3D print things better. You can get things sourced overseas better. Prototyping. All of it is, it's, I mean, that's my experience is like we were really afraid to invest in hardware 10 years ago and now we aggressively invest in those types of things i think that's true in a lot of ways and you have people like the walmarts and targets of the world who have teams that are going out and looking for young new startups creating innovative stuff because people realize like we can't just make software who wants to live on the axiom does anyone know what the axiom is we're selling tickets. You got your tickets yet? I'm not buying my tickets. I'm not buying my tickets to the Axiom, which is the big spaceship that takes everyone up into space so we can all float around on our floating chairs and drink our big gulps with our VR glasses on. That's where we're going if all we work on is software. You got to actually make some stuff, too, so we can like move about in the physical world. So, you know, yes, software is easy. It's easy to build, it's easy to scale, it's easy to prove out, it's easy to throw away if it doesn't work. But like, I don't know, you know, people that I think are like really trying to make a difference aren't only doing software. I saw a w- recent chart showing technological waves over time and from, you know, really going back to like industrialization and electricity and steam and things like that. And, um, and software being the last one now starting to almost decline in its kind of innovative opportunities and robotics and hardware and space and things like that being kind of the next wave that's now being enabled. And and I'd say that's, we're seeing that at Capital Factory for sure. Oh my God, it's music to my ears. I love that for Nexus. Yeah, so I noticed a lot of very successful people have like their vices, right? And they have like their ways of dealing with them. What are your vices and how do you deal with them? Sugar, candy. I mean, ever since I was a little kid in military school, I needed to start a business so I could buy more gumballs, right? Like legitimately, so I could buy more gumballs. Um, So sugar has been a big one for me. I've actually, because I have a highly addictive personality, I've never drank because I'm just like, you know what? That's probably not a good idea for me. Like I was already the kid at college, you know, parties was jumping off the four story apartment complex into the four foot deep pool, you know, and like, People thought I was the drunkest, highest kid at the party. I had long hair. Everyone asked me to buy drugs for me. Like, I didn't even drink alcohol. I never, I never experimented with any kind of alcohol or substance or anything until basically 30 when we started experimenting and working with plant medicines and psychedelics, which I highly recommend when the time is right. I think knowing that I have a highly addictive personality was how I kind of managed my vices by just, like, not letting myself you know, really like go in, like I've never done cocaine. I will never do it. I've never done alcohol. No reason for it. It's minor poison. 
I'm, you're not going to see me doing meth or heroin or any of those highly addictive things. I'm just never going to touch it because I've got a pretty addictive personality. So, you know, that's, I guess, how I manage my vices. I think we've mentioned this before, but, yeah, my, my, my as I've told my, my kids, my, I have, like, two bright red lines that I have not crossed um, and it's, it's, for me, it was, it was motorcycles and cocaine and it was, bo- and it was both of them. And I just yeah. was like, I'm sure I would love both of them. Like, I'm sure it would be like, amazing. You know, like I just, but both of them involved me ending up dead splattered somewhere. Like I just like, I do not 100%. believe in myself and my ability to deal with it. hundred uh, percent. Mo- motorcycles were the same thing for me. Super you know, per- personality. Right. Yeah. Like, I think I love, I love speed. I love motorcycles yes. and I will end up splattered somewhere. So I yep. don't drive. T- so my, e- my e-bike is like the furthest I push it. Mm-hmm. But. Same. Yeah. And we, we've got just a few more time for a few more questions. This is great. Really appreciate these great questions. Uh, thank you for being here. So you and Christy got like second place on the first Amazing Race and first place on your second. So what was it about your teamwork that helped you get there? Oh, wow. He's handing the mic over. Nope. <laughs> yeah, I think when we first ran the race, we both wanted to be the leader. Okay, we were like, I'm the boss. Listen to me, both of us. So that really meant we were both in our masculine energy. All of us, whether you're male or female, have masculine, feminine energy. Um, And we were both in that masculine energy. There was not any feminine energy being uh, expressed on season five. So. Yes, we were getting places faster, but ultimately we were not cooperative components. And in the end, we come up short. So when we go back on the race 15 years later, we had done a lot of work, inner work on ourselves. We had already started experimenting with plant medicine, psychedelics, meditation, breath work. And what we had both learned was a lot of reverence for how powerful the feminine is. So when we went back on the race, it was very important for us to really harness our feminine energy, okay, the oracle, the intuition. You have two brains. Your original brain is your gut, and then you have this second brain as we evolve. And so we were much more in our original, like in our gut, in that feminine energy. And we also respected each other um, to, because what Colin and I, we've been uh, in relationship for 23 years, And what we do beautifully, but we took us a long time to learn that, is when to, um, when I step into my masculine, he goes into his feminine. When he steps into his masculine, I go into my feminine. And that's where the polarity, that's where the magic really is. So we were visualizing, we were meditating, sex magic practice together as we were intending how that next leg of the race was going to go. And wouldn't you know, it would look almost to a T exactly as we had visioned it. Because that's the kind of reverence we had for working with that more feminine energy. And that was really the biggest difference for season 31. And it was, it was the difference between second place and first place. So I got two questions. You um, get one. <laughs> well, they're, they're related, so I'm going to do both of them. Uh, <laughs> We'll see about that. All right, we'll see. So, how did your product, like, how does Kickstarter make money off your product? And uh, 
would you take a cut of your sales? Just initially? Okay. You got to pay fees to get on the platform. Once you sell through them. And if you knew everything that you do today, would you still launch a product from Kickstarter if you didn't have all this money and all that? Nick's going to bring you the (laughs) mic. Uh oh. What's the biggest misconception with dealing with that government? Yeah. It's a great question. I probably have that misconception, so I would be <laughs> only feeding it by saying what it is. I have no idea. By definition, there's lots of misconceptions, and I'm sure I have lots of them, and I think I'm right, and turns out I'm wrong, right? So. Let's Maybe reset. I would Let's say reset. the biggest misconception. What's your experience working with China? You know, my personal experience is in working with, call it working with companies that are born out of and come from just a very different culture, right? What I realized in my dealings with DJI and, you know, it's the it's a long story, whatever, they ultimately ended up buying me out of my, you know, share of DJI North America, whatever. Um, but what I realized is that they are just playing by a slightly different set of rules. It would be like if we're playing Catan together and they're allowed to use any port because that's just part of how they play. But like how we play is you have to put a settlement on a port to be able to use that port or, or vice versa. We can use any port and they can't use a port. If you're sitting down and playing a game with another set of people, but you're not all playing by what's considered fair, not fair, correct, not correct, right? And so a lot of times people might take it really personally, wait, you agreed to this thing and you signed this contract, but yet now you're doing this other thing or you're doing X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, yeah, what do you mean? That's, that's part of the game. Like there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. That's allowed. In Survivor, if I tell you, if I'm playing the reality show Survivor with you, and I tell you, like, Josh, I got your back tonight. Don't you worry. I'm not voting you off. We're going to the end. We're going to the final two, you and me, right? And then I go to the tribal council that night, and I'm like, let's get this dude out, right? And we all vote. We blindside Josh. What is that seen as? A super good play, a great blindside executed by these four individuals on this guy who thought he was going to the final two. And it's like, no big deal. It's part of the game. That's part of Survivor. It's like the fun of it. If you take that personally, you shouldn't be on Survivor. So my biggest misconception was that everyone in all cultures and all parts of the world all play by the same business rules. That's just not the case. So maybe just understand what those differences might be and don't make a bunch of assumptions that everyone agrees with the way you want to do business. Those were the mistakes I made. Yeah, it's a great question. So I think anytime you can create a category, it's a great thing to do instead of like coming into a new category. So with DJI, we created the category of drones and consumer drones and prosumer drones and stuff like that. And then a whole bunch of other people came in and all we had to do was try to stay ahead. 
and keep making the best product. Keep making the best user experience. Keep building our brand equity and our brand identity, right? As you'll notice when The Verge, when Gizmodo wrote about Hasbro's new Gelfire line, does it say Hasbro invents Gelfire category whatever in the, in the heading of the article that Hasbro paid Verge to write for them? No, the heading says Hasbro makes their own Gel Blaster because Gel Blaster is the name of the category. So first and foremost, create the category, right? Check. We have trademark on Gel Blaster. The name of the category is Gel Blaster. That can cause some issues down the road with branded search on Amazon because basically branded search becomes like very expensive for us because we are also the name of the category. But in general, create the category and then just stay one step ahead. And that's what we're doing with the Nexus system and the whole digital ecosystem that we've been working on with all of our drone engineers for the last three years, which is like definitely going to be something that you will not see these other toy companies even like playing anywhere in that in that sphere. So constantly think, how can I make the experience better for my customers? And so we one of the issues with our product is that it's kind of a pain to grow the ammo and let it hydrate for a couple hours. And then you're like dealing with how do I strain out the excess water and I've got this salad bowl and I'm spilling and this is a, and I noticed right in the beginning, I was like, this is a problem. This is like kind of a hassle. So I was like, engineers, we're gonna make the best damn bucket this world has ever seen. Especially designed for making ammo, storing ammo, straining the excess water and speed loading your hopper. And we got some patents on that bucket. And it turns out that bucket is listed on Amazon in the, in the blaster category, right? The number one SKU in the blaster category that includes all Nerf guns, all gel blasters, all splatter ball, that whole blaster category, the number one SKU in Christmas last year was our bucket. Because everyone who bought a gel blaster, everyone who bought a gel fire, everyone who bought a Zuru or a Primetime Toys or a Daisy, which is Splatterball, they're all buying our bucket because it greatly improved the user experience of this type of product. So we are constantly thinking, how can we make this better for our customers? I don't give a shit what those guys are doing. I wanna know my customer, I wanna know my kids, I wanna know this play pattern, and I wanna make it better. And we own 50% of the category, which is the fastest growing category in toys today. And so, you know, if we can maintain 40 to 50% market share of that category, we're, we're made in the shade. Nick, can you just, just, can you pick who gets the mic? Yep, let's start right here. We got two mics now. Two, okay. Yeah, so I just wanted to ask, so as you scale your product, how do you decide what features you'd need to compromise on and what you'd really, I guess, what would not change no matter what? Oh my God, such a good question. And it harkens back to the very first thing I said when Josh first gave me a microphone today, which was, Be your own customer. You will always get beat by the person who's building something for themselves because they know how to answer that question. All product development is, whether it's software or hardware, is a series of compromises. That's all you're gonna be met with. The dreamboat scenario is that this thing exists. This new CRM that uses language processing and people can just ask it a question magically and it's gonna tell me all about my customers. Like that's the dreamboat scenario. And then you're met with, actually, we got some complexities. And you wanted it to work this way and your engineers come back and they go, you can either have this and it costs this much 
or you can have this and it costs this much. And you have to be able to make the decision for your future customer. Because maybe my future customer wants is like, oh, an extra 10 bucks for X, Y, or Z feature? Absolutely no brainer. They definitely want that. Or, oh, 10 bucks for that? Definitely do not need that. Absolutely not. And I can answer that question because I'm the customer. I'm the dad who wants this thing for me and my kids to play with. So the answer to that is like, be your own customer, understand the problem really, really well because it is your problem. Then you'll be able to answer that, those questions as they come along. Like you seem very in touch with like your mind and like motivation and how it relates to the business. So I was just wondering if you could elaborate on like how much you meditate and like what mental steps you go through. Yeah, so I'm, I'm like a super, super high energy ADHD kid, right? Like they didn't know what to do with me. I'm bouncing off the walls. I can't sit still to read a book. I can't relax, right? And so meditation became really important for me as a way to like, have some balance, right? So I'm kind of like a very like habitual type person. So my Apple Watch does not hit me with notifications every time somebody's like updating their Instagram profile or whatever. My Apple Watch is here to help me track six daily habits that I want to do every single day, which include that are all have nothing to do with work. It's all physical and mental well-being. One of those daily habits is at least 20 minutes of meditation. And I've got to go to, when I go to bed at night, I've got to click that. And I'm at 703 days without missing, at least doing a 20 minute meditation. Before I implemented that, I could hardly get myself to meditate two days a week. Right? Even though I knew how beneficial it was. The problem I would get into is I would start, I would meditate. I'd be meditating every day. By the way, the six phase meditation, you guys would love it by Vishen Lakiani, something like that. It's called the six-phase meditation on YouTube, especially if you're engineers. Um, I would do that meditation, and things would start working. Everything's like, man, everything's going great. Everyone's coming. Like, people are finding us. This is amazing. Now I'm like, I don't have time to meditate because I got all this great stuff going on. I'm working, working, working. I, oh, I missed my meditation that day. Oh, no, big deal. Things are rising. Oh, I missed it the second day. Like, okay, great. I didn't get enough sleep that night because things are showing, going so great, right? All of a sudden, four or five days go by, and I'm like, man, I'm kind of feeling tired guy cuts me off in traffic and I can like hear the internal voice like wanting to like yell at him and chat. I'm like, whoa, I haven't been on that channel in a while. I used to do that all the time, but like why that? Oh shit. Yeah. I haven't meditated in like five days. Right. And so I would get into this cycle. And so I realized just like the most important thing is to do my daily habits every day that lead to me feeling good in my body and in my mind and my spirit and then let the, let, like, whatever all the time I have in the day, I'm going to create from there. You know, I think one of the things that Chris Himes said when he was here last week was when you're, you know, CEO of a big company, you're never done, right? You, can, you, you can't go to bed at night going like, okay, I, I got all the things done. I, I got my to-do list done. You know, everything's done. There's nothing else I need to go do. Like, you know, like, think what the president's like, whatever. Like, there's like a million more things to go do, a million more problems you can go solve. 
And um, and I'll t- I'll just say personally, you know, I'm I'm 47, um, and it's really I, I would actually just say really just for me just really started to catch up to me recently, uh, as um in my middle life, my kids are teenagers. Capital Factory's growing. We just went through COVID and everything else, just like all you did, and and suddenly I'm like I'm like I'm I'm thinking like I thought I was invincible. I thought I could work all the time. I thought I could and and like actually no, like I'm not invincible. Like I need to make sure that I make time for these things, or else or I'm not feeling good, and then I'm not you know able to bring my best self to the things we go do. And then that just permeates through. Yeah. The more people you affect, that just ripples out. But that, but that's really, and it was something that like I went a long time, like I mean, like twenty years, you know, like, but like, and thinking like, and I just thought like, oh, that's just me, like I'm just invincible, like I'm just, oh yeah, I was in the same program, yeah, like I can just that that like I, I'm just I'm just like that, like I can just go do that, and then actually recently I was just realized that no, actually no, I'm I'm human, I actually need to do those, take care of myself as well. I would say use this formula. What I was doing is I was making assumptions about what would bring me happiness. And what would, because ultimately what we, if I could say, I'll give you the ability right now to feel great and to feel free for the rest of your life. You want, you want to do it? I, yes, sign me up for that program. Okay, it might not mean that it looks exactly the way you think it's going to look, but you are going to feel amazing. And you're going to feel healthy in your body and you're going to feel happy and you're going to feel like you're on purpose and you're fulfilled. And, and are you okay with that outcome? I'm okay with that outcome, whatever that looks like. Because ultimately what we want to do is we want to feel free. We want to feel good. We want to feel. And, and so if you just simply focus on what makes me actually feel good and what makes me not feel good, we might think that what's going to make me feel good is having a big exit as an entrepreneur and being able to buy my private jet and have my yacht and take all my friends down and play with all our toys. But like, maybe that's not actually the thing that makes me feel good, right? Maybe that just makes me work 100 hours a week because I'm trying to get to some place that may or may not ever come someday, right? What you realize if you actually just pay attention to what makes you feel good is that giving back to others, helping other people grow, you know, feeling like you're in community with other open-hearted individuals who are on a similar path and trying to bring more good into the world actually is Feel, what feels like good. Feeling like what you do matters. Like feeling like what you do matters, that maybe you're like helping some kids spend a little bit less time on their screens and run around and meet the neighborhood kids that they may not have ever otherwise met, right? Those are how I start going in, in, into that. And what I was realizing is that what makes me feel good is playing I was like, how can I play more? What if we just make a whole company about play? And then we have a reason to be in integrity with our mission by playing. So every day at Gel Blaster, a bell goes off, like when you're in elementary school, and that's recess at 12.30. And then that bell goes off again at 2 p.m. That's the end of recess. And you're not supposed to work during recess. You go play because we are a company that is embodying play because that actually makes us feel good. And so that is the stand that we're taking as a company is to bring more play into the world. And so that's where me focusing on what actually makes me feel good and doing more of that, right? So just use that formula. 
and then use the formula of be really curious about stuff. If I can be really deeply curious about my experience as a human and why I tick this way and why I act that way and like really look for cues and breadcrumbs for how people show up to you, like, huh, I wonder, you know, just really be curious and be willing to be super honest with yourself. That will lead to understanding, which equals compassion for self. Once you can find compassion and forgiveness and understanding and love for yourself, then you can provide that to others, not before you do it for yourself. You do those things, like that is what took me 30 years to figure out, that simple formula. Testing, testing. All right, you just got to speak up and hear it. Um, hi. You've worked on, grown, and led a lot of hardware companies. Can you talk about some of the challenges that you encountered and what lessons you've learned from them? Maybe specific to hardware? Specific to, turns out hardware's hard, costs a lot of money, takes three times longer than you thought for three times more expensive than you thought it was going to be. Make damn sure you have margins. Like, that's probably the big one is people make some hardware product and they're like, ah, oh, we'll figure out margins later. We're going to make this, whether it's a drone, we're going to make it for 1500 and we're going to sell them for 1200 but eventually we're going to get our costs right and we're going to start making money. Well, it's like, that's a fake product. That's not a real thing. Just because people want to buy that thing for $1,200, like they're buying something for $1,200 that costs you 1500 to make. That's not real, right? Like, that can't actually exist in the world, right? We're not living in the world of NFTs and hardware. We have to actually buy parts, put them together, put them in a package, and send them to customers. So, like, if you don't have very clear line of sight on how that 1400 becomes 300 which is, like, a pretty big drop in cogs and bomb, right, then just don't do it. So, with Kickstarter, we knew, like, our initial products that we sold on Kickstarter cost us $17. Today, we're down to 10. That's a huge decrease. And we knew that we were going to have that ability. But at $17, the very first product we ever sold was 59 bucks, And that was as thin as I was willing to ever go. Because if we cannot sell this at a profit and have high net promoter score, which is literally the only metric that matters in your business, if I can sell at a good gross margin and have a high net promoter score, we are onto something. And so I would say, like, get your costs right. Don't fool yourself, right? If you can't sell it at a profit, it's not real. Hardware is a hell of a, hardware is hard. It's, that's a saying. That's like, I've been hearing that saying for a long time. It's, hardware is like not nearly as hard as it was 10 years ago. Would you agree with that? I, in the sense that nothing is as hard as it was 10 years ago because of, like, all these technological advances, right? I mean, writing a paper is not as hard as it was 10 years ago. But, like, it's just hardware is more, it's more modular. It's more like software. It's more, uh, there's more ways to get things, you can 3D print things better. You can get things that's sourced true. overseas better. Prototyping. Like, all of it is, yep. it's, I mean, that's my experience is, like, we were really afraid to invest in hardware 10 years ago. And now we aggressively invest in those types of things. I think that's true in a lot of ways. And you have people like the Walmarts and Targets of the world who have teams that are going out and looking for young new startups creating innovative stuff. Because people realize, like, we can't just make software. 
Who wants to live on the Axiom? Does anyone know what the Axiom is? We're selling tickets. Do you got your tickets yet? I'm not buying my tickets. I'm not buying my tickets to the Axiom, which is the big spaceship that takes everyone up into space so we can all float around on our floating chairs and drink our big gulps with our VR glasses on. That's where we're going if all we work on is software. You got to actually make some stuff, too, so we can, like, move about in the physical world. So, you know, yes, software is easy. It's easy to build. It's easy to scale. It's easy to prove out. It's easy to throw away if it doesn't work. But, like, I don't know, you know, people that I think are, like, really trying to make a difference aren't only doing software. I saw a recent chart showing technological waves over time and from you know really going back to like industrialization and electricity and steam and things like that and um and software being the last one now starting to pe you know, almost decline wow in, in its kind of innovative opportunities and robotics and hardware and space and things like that be, being kind of the next wave that's now being enabled and and i'd say that's we're seeing that at capital factory for sure Oh my God, it's music to my ears. I love that for yeah. Nexus. Yeah, so I noticed a lot of very successful people have like their vices, right? And they have like their ways of dealing with them. What are your vices and how do you deal with them? That's a great question. So meth amphetamine has been a big one for me. Um, you know, at first you lose your teeth, which is a bit of a bummer, right? No, I'm just joking. I probably shouldn't joke about that. Uh, it's probably highly inappropriate. Um, no, my vice is sugar, candy. I mean, ever since I was a little kid in military school, I needed to start a business so I could buy more gumballs, right? Like legitimately, so I could buy more gumballs. Um, so sugar has been a big one for me. I've actually, because I have a highly addictive personality, I've never drank. Because I'm just like, you know what? That's probably not a good idea for me. Like I was already the kid at college, you know, parties was jumping off the four-story apartment complex into the four-foot deep pool, you know, and like people thought I was the drunkest, highest kid at the party. I had long hair. Everyone asked me to buy drugs for me. Like I didn't even drink alcohol. I never, I never experimented with any kind of alcohol or substance or anything until basically 30 when we started experimenting and working with plant medicines and psychedelics, which I highly recommend when the time is right with the right intention. Um, but I think knowing that I have a highly addictive personality was how I kind of managed my vices by just like not letting myself, you know, really like go in. Like I've never done cocaine. I will never do it. I've never done alcohol. No reason for it. It's minor poison. I'm, you're not going to see me doing meth or heroin or any of those highly addictive things. I'm just never going to touch it because I've got a pretty addictive personality. So, you know. That's, I guess, how I manage my vices. I think we've mentioned this before, but yeah, my, 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 as I've told my, my kids, my, I have like two bright red lines that I've have not crossed. Um, and it's, it's, for me, it was, it was motorcycles and cocaine and it was, and it was both of them. And I just yeah. was like, I'm sure I would love both of them. Like, I'm sure it would be amazing. Like, you know, like I just, but both of them involved me ending up dead splattered somewhere. Like I just like, I do not 100%. believe in myself and my ability to deal with it. hundred uh, percent. Mo motorcycles were the same thing for me. Obsessive, you know, personality. Right. Yeah. Like, I think I love, I love speed. I love motorcycles yes. and I will end up splattered somewhere. So I yep. don't drive. So my e, my e bike is like the furthest I push it. Mm -hmm. but, same. Yeah. 
And we've we got just a few more time for a few more questions. This is great. Really appreciate these great questions. Uh, thank you for being here. So you and Christy at like second place on the first Amazing Race and first place on your second. So what was it about your teamwork that helped you get there? Oh, wow. He's <laughs> handing the mic over. Nope. <laughs> She's our hey, give her your clip, too. Um, you got okay. it? Yeah, I think when we first ran the race, we both wanted to be the leader, okay? We were like, I'm the boss. Listen to me, both of us. So that really meant we were both in our masculine energy, all of us, whether you're male or female, have masculine, feminine energy. Um, and we were both in that masculine energy. There was not any feminine energy being uh, expressed on season five. So yes, we were getting places faster, but ultimately we were not cooperative components. And in the end, we come up short. So when we go back on the race 15 years later, we had done a lot of work, inner work on ourselves. We had already started experimenting with plant medicine, psychedelics, meditation, breath work, and what we had both learned was a lot of reverence for how powerful the feminine is. So when we went back on the race, it was very important for us to really harness our feminine energy, okay, the oracle, the intuition. You have two brains. Your original brain is your gut, and then you have this second brain as we evolve. And so we were much more in our original, like in our gut, in that feminine energy. And we also respected each other um, to, because what Colin and I, we've been uh, in relationship for 23 years. And what we do beautifully, but we took us a long time to learn that, is when to, um, when I step into my masculine, he goes into his feminine. When he steps into his masculine, I go into my feminine. And that's where the polarity, that's where the magic really is. So we were visualizing, we were meditating, sex magic practice together as we were intending how that next leg of the race was going to go. And wouldn't you know, it would look almost to a T exactly as we had visioned it. Because that's the kind of reverence we had for working with that more feminine energy. And that was really the biggest difference for season 31. And it was, it was the difference between second place and first place. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Very we got well said. bonus points today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Austinpreneur. Don't forget to check out capitalfactory.com to learn more about us and join our community. If you have thoughts about the show or ideas on how we can work together, reach out to me directly via email, nickspiller at capitalfactory.com. Shout out to the Capital Factory Dream Team for making this podcast possible and special thanks to Aaron Handworker who masterfully recorded and edited the show. Come back next week for a whole new episode.